Welcome back to Talking Points, the podcast that shines a light on life in the performing arts. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today I'm speaking with the phenomenal Sean Parker. Sean's path to artistic director and choreographer of an internationally renowned contemporary dance company is totally unexpected. Sean had grown up on a grape farm in Mildura in regional Victoria, and apart from life on the farm, he had doubled in dance, acting and singing. But after finishing high school, Sean decided to study science at Monash University in Melbourne, until a sliding doors moment when Sean saw a dance class rehearsing in a university lecture room, and the rest is history. In this most wonderful interview, Sean talks about dropping out of uni, returning to the studio to train, and about dancing professionally with the likes of Meryl Tankard, Australian Dance Theatre, and Chunky Moves, just to name a few. But Sean also speaks about a lot more. Of his marriage to a woman, about later identifying as bisexual, and we also speak about toxic masculinity. And finally, about Sean finding his purpose in starting the internationally acclaimed Sean Parker and Company. Just quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that Season 3 of Talking Points is sponsored by Energetics. Energetics specialise in creating sustainable, world-class dancewear for the stars of tomorrow. Perform and feel your best at every stage of your dance journey in Energetics premium, high-performance fabrics. Try them out with a 20% discount for all Talking Points listeners using the code SEAN20 at the checkout. Shop their extensive range online at energetics.com.au or for our US listeners, it's energetics.com. T's and C's apply. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Welcome back from Europe. Yes, the jet lag has um, subsided and I feel I'm back in the land of the living again, (laughs) which is great. I want to hear all about that tour because you have just taken King overseas, really, for the first time since COVID. But before we get into that, I was hoping you could tell us all about, you know, where you grew up and and where, and your childhood. Yes, I was born in Mordura uh, in the northwest of Victoria. We grew up on a grape farm, so we were a country family. And uh, we had uh, sultanas and currants and we grew wow. grapes and... It was pretty amazing, country living, uh, and I loved it. It was a a country family with my older brother and older sister and my mum and dad. And so just like setting the scene for those who don't know that area, we're in Victoria, south, you know, bottom of Australia. So it is so rural. I mean, you know, we're we're sort of close to the New South Wales and South Australian borders, really. We're really right right near that triangle. Exactly. Mm. We're northwest Victoria, right on the border. It had a beautiful Murray River coming through it, a beautiful river. So around Mordura, it was very arid. Mm -hmm. Two two and a half hours from Mordura, they filmed the original Mad Max. (laughs) So that gives a, like, there's desert everywhere all around us, you know apart from the Murray River, so it's beautiful trees and green and fishing. I used to fish almost every day. Um, So that was what I did most of my school holidays, either work on the farm or go fishing and jump off the Mildura Bridge and get chased by the police. And so how does a boy on a grape farm in Mildura find 
the performing arts, fine dance? Like how does that come into your life? I think it came through a bit of suffering. One must <laughs> suffer for one's art. I think because I couldn't speak properly. I had a very bad series of speech impediments. I couldn't actually speak sentences till I was about seven. So I had uh, a lot of stutters, like I was... I was like this, I couldn't actually get words out. Then I moved to a different sort where everything started with a um, a T, like every wow, word started okay. with a T, and I could sort of say words if I started them with a T. Oh, like you sort of jump onto the word. T, it'd be like my sister was Kim, Kim and my brother Corey, so that'd be Tim and Tori. I could sort of, as long as it started with a T, I could get the word out. And then I, I finally, after getting through all of that, um, managed to get taken to a speech therapist, mm-hmm. which my mum found out on a farm. A lot of the locals called her sort of the hippie woman, you know, but she was actually really good. Wow. <laughs> but in a country town they thought she was a bit of a witch or something. But she was just doing, you know, natural <laughs> therapies, which we now everyone wants to do. But she uh, she got me to talk and I remember it like a film in my mind that she had a, a viewfinder, those ones... It was a professional viewfinder, like those mm-hmm. ones when you were little, when you kid, when you were a kid. Remember when you looked through the goggles and you would flick the slide around and you would see. Maybe you're too young, but they had. Um, you could look through a viewfinder and flick the slide, mm-hmm. and it would go through different pictures. No, I think my kids have the equivalent now, like a small little torch almost, and you yeah, flick, and there's yes. like different images come yes, up. Yes, exactly. But, yeah, we had the 1973 <laughs> version. Because it was the 70s in Mildura. It's a long time ago. No computers, nothing. It was like that was high tech back then, a viewfinder. And so basically I would, she gave it to me and I would put my eyes in it and I remember flicking it onto the farmyard. And because I was looking through the viewfinder, I couldn't see anybody else. I couldn't Mm -hmm. see anything except the farm. So I was immersed inside the farm. And when I looked down, I was going, okay, there's cows, ducks, chickens, a donkey over there in the corner, I, in a fence. I She would get me to explain what I saw and I was able to speak complete words for the first time. And I remember as I was doing it, I could feel something click in my mind. So that was a real turning point. I remember it like a film. I was about four, wow. three or four. I still remember it, which is like pretty wild. And I feel like growing up in country Victoria in the 70s with a speech impediment is not an easy road. It's, no, I mean, it's, you know, medical yeah. services, health services are still sparse in regional and rural Australia, let alone sort yes. of 50 odd years ago. Sparse is a good adjective to describe <laughs> it. Very sparse, non existent. We love it. But it was, yes, but we had that one amazing hippie woman who actually turned out to be a legend and, and was the linchpin of me discovering. She gave me these little books that I'd read and I studied every day. I went home wow. and, and did them because I wanted to speak so much. And then when I was about f- maybe five, mum came in and I was watching play school and I was singing Mary Had a Little Lamb because they had Big Ted, Little Ted and Jemima mm-hmm. and all those on play school. And I was singing along the entire song perfectly. Whereas if I went to speak those words, there's no way I could say it in a continuous sentence. So oh, I could sing it. And the therapist was saying that when you sing, you're actually not really speaking, you're singing. So you're actually singing a melody, which is a three-dimensional idea. 
it's a note placed mm. in space and you just attach a word to it. So it's a very different process to when you speak text. I was a little boy soprano, so they sent me off to singing lessons when I was eight. Right. So after I could speak, I then they started to build my confidence So because I was started to sing things mm -hmm. because that was my way in because mm -hmm. I was good at it. So I was, your body then, mind goes, I'm going to do more of what I'm good at. And then they sent me off to the Mordura Little Theatre and my sister and I both went and there we did improvisation. And when I was acting, this is interesting, word perfect as well. Interesting. Because I was playing a role. I wasn't myself. And so then I just did some plays and singing, mm -hmm. the Mordura Steadfords, the older Steadfords. <laughs> I love an Steadford, yes. <laughs> yes, which was great. And then my sister was the one who wanted to do ballet, actually. Oh, I see. Which is often the way in for many uh, yeah. younger brothers who have yes. sort of sat in the corner and Watching uh, observed. And then go, oh. mm, I might join in that. Because I never, ever wanted to dance. Like my, Like from a child, it never even crossed my mind. And then my sister invited me to their ballet concert. Mm -hmm. I was 13, she was 15. And it was a ballet of, they did a contemporary ballet version of Watership Down, which was that book about the rabbits. Rabbits, I know it well. You know, the rabbits. <laughs> so there was like, you know, the, the rat, they all had tracksuits. So they wore full brown, light brown, grey, black, white. There was all the different coloured <laughs> rabbits which were tribal entities coming together. <laughs> and when I was sitting there, I was literally thinking, wow, I can do this. This is what I need to do. This is what I have to do. And I even had visions of choreographies that I was going to do. Did and I'd even really? never done it. It See, was very strange. See, that's fascinating because 13 is also, I'm going to say, an awkward age because, yeah. you know, the hormones are kicking in. You're also not usually that interested in trying something new at that point. It's the, yes. you know, conform, yes. fit in, don't stand out. So yes. what happens at that point? You think, I'm 13, I've just got over a speech impediment in rural Victoria, but I'm going to head for the stage. I mean, it's an interesting yes. tie together. It, I think, yeah, well, once I saw dance, I knew that I had to do it. It sort of chose me really. Mm. And I was always an individualist. Okay. I never followed the crowd. So I was very stubborn. But it was that stubbornness that made me be able to survive the country town because it was awful. Was it? I had to hide it. Yeah, it was, it was hideous. I'd never told anyone proudly that I was a dancer. I had to hide it. I had fights, you know. You know, got bashed and I fought back. But I was a, I was stubborn. Is that because of the dance only? The singing a bit as well mm -hmm. because I sang like a girl. Yeah, I was a little boy soprano. Yeah, so it was it was pretty brutal, but I was very stubborn. It was a, a fight or flight thing. You either mm -hmm. shrunk down or you fought back. That's what survival was like in Mordura as a boy. It was, and this is where a lot of the toxic masculinity ideas have come in and mm -hmm. have fed in actually a little bit into the work king, mm -hmm. which I has fed in in a very unsuspecting way, but a very sort of direct way as well. I mean, I'm always interested in what is it in someone who, despite all of that going on around them, what makes you persevere? Is it an in, in spite of or is it just there's an innate drive towards that for you? That's a really good question. Why did I keep going if it was so hard? I was, I just really loved it. It was like a calling mm. and I knew I could do it. 
because after that, the ballet, the rabbit's ballet, watership mm-hmm. down, I went outside and I was showing my sister and I just did a, a double pirouette. I'd just seen it and I pulled off a double pirouette. I just watched it and knew I could do it. And my sister said, wow, you just did a double pirouette. That's really hard. And she went and told the ballet teachers. Then they <laughs> they hunted me down in the local cinema because word had got around. Sean Parker did a double pirouette. And so we were actually going to see Footloose. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Because you got to cut loose. Footloose. Ah. So <laughs> we went to see that at the cinema because there was one cinema. Wow. One actual cinema in Mildura, that's all. So we walked in and the ballet teacher was in the back row also seeing this dance movie and said, Kim, is that your brother, the one? So that's where she recruited me. So she said, I want you to come and be in my ballet. I've got a role as the snake charmer mm-hmm. in La Bayadere. So that was my first role. Okay. So you've now been <laughs> ensconced into this world. Yes. What happens next? I'm presuming you're sort of going through high school. It's probably not the greatest of years, is it? It was hell, but I wasn't going to let it stop Mm. me have fun. But I was an academic as well, so I got a lot of really good marks. The teachers would say, the English teacher in particular would say, I don't know, how did you... You never do any work in class. How do you hand in an essay and get an A for it? And Because I was the class clown, so I used class as an opportunity to tell jokes. Um, so, um, that's what one of my English teachers said. She said, Sean, when do, you, when do you do this? I said, I just went home and whipped it up. She said, you should be doing it in class. And I said, I know, but it's hard when there's... So many there's people an to audience. entertain. There's yeah. an audience. I must deliver to my audience. Um, no, but you're right. The, the, the high school years were hard in terms of the fighting, mm-hmm. the hiding, the trying to be who am I as a male. So a lot of it had to be um, suppressed, you know, like I identify as bisexual. So there was none of letting anybody know that in Mujura and anything that was creative or feminine. Mm-hmm. I used to smile a lot because I'm very smiley and some groups of guys would basically punch me for it, say, oh, you're gay, you're faggot, all these horrible slurs. Back then it was seen as the worst. So much hate mm-hmm. was directed towards you for being creative, dancing, singing. It was like it was the end. It was like you do not, as a boy, you do not do that. So that, there was all that horrible stuff, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there wouldn't have even been terminology for bisexuality. No, there was no terminology back no. then. It was just... Gay, faggot. I think there was even term poofter it was in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Poofter. But, it, yeah, it was all totally suppressed. But sometimes that suppression, mm. being stopped of being creative, possibly underneath fueled mm. the desire, the F-U approach. Yeah. That might have been under there as well. Like, um, I'm going to show them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get out of Mildura and, and show you what I can do. So it's interesting. you've got a very good point there. It works in interesting ways, mm, you know. How it comes out. And mm. so what happened? You graduate high school and what what's where's the headspace? So basically we uh, moved to Melbourne and when I was 15, so we left Mordura. Okay. And by that stage I was, this is where, you know, the, te- the hormones started kicking because I, I think I was a late bloomer. So year 11, year 12, I actually left dance because okay. we left Mildura and Mildura for me was where my dance was. Mm-hmm. And I tried a few places in Melbourne. I just couldn't find a dance school that I could connect with. Mm-hmm. I was going through identity problems of my own. I wanted to please 
my father. I wanted him to be uh, proud of me. I always knew he never really liked the dance at all. And so I gave it up and became a full-blown academic. And that's where I got really good marks. And once again, I did what I was getting 90s and 100%. I was did what I was really good at. So mm-hmm. I then went and did a science degree at Monash University. I love science. I did really well at it. I was going to do a PhD in zoology in the end. I started in quantum physics and mathematics. I mean, Sean, what? It's but just so incredible. Quantum I, physics. Yeah, it was, and it's interesting because that years later came into my work Am I that I did mm-hmm. at the Opera House. There was a lot of um, study in quantum physics and spirituality, the wow. link between science and, and religion or spirituality. That was that sort of piece. But it's funny how all this science stuff has come into the actual work. Mm. So at the time I thought, when I left it, I thought, oh, not that it was a waste of time. I always knew that it wasn't because I learnt so much. Mm. Like you know what it was like. You mm. had to memorise massive books of organic and inorganic chemistry mm. My memorization was highly enhanced. I was very really good at statistics, so I could whip numbers up all over the place, formulas. So all of that stuff now has helped me set up my company because nobody mm. taught me that. So I needed to use all those skills and no one helped me set up my company. No one helps you in Australia become a choreographer. Well, There's no. zero help. It, you have to do it all yourself. Of course. Isn't it strange? Yes. Like it's, it's, it's helped so much. The crossover so, of skills yes. is, is wild, really. Yes. And so... What pulls you out of the science degree? Well, at the union building at the university, I was walking through the union building and a door was open and I walked past it and I just saw a dancing body flash past and I went, oh, wow, there's dancing. So I took a few steps back and peered in and there was a Monash Modern Dance Society. They had a little club at the wow. university. And I mean, I went, that's a sliding doors moment, isn't that, it? That was. It was like if that door had been shut, I would have just walked and I wouldn't be sitting here now. I, I know I would never would have ended up back in dance. So it was quite incredible. So I stuck my head in and the girl rushed over and said, oh, excuse me, we're dancing because I look, probably looked like some <laughs> guy perving on all the girls in the leotard. And I went, oh, oh. Oh, that's okay. I just used to dance. I I was looking at you guys. It reminded me that I danced. And her eyes lit up. Oh, come in because they needed a guy for their production. Of course, they grabbed <laughs> me like a guy who used to dance. And then I started dancing in the, in, in the club. And it was in the end of year performance. I was waiting in the wings. We did a performance at Alexander Theatre there at Monash University. Mm-hmm. And I was waiting in the wings about to come on and it was another in through another sliding door I was sitting there just waiting to go on thinking I have to dance I have to leave science this is what I have to do so um the girl who told me to go away she ended up becoming my girlfriend at the time (laughs) she said you should go for VCA Victorian College of the Arts Mm -hmm. I'd never really heard of it or I'd sort of heard of it there was no internet back then so it wasn't as if everyone knew where to go I thought can you have dance as a career? I think you can. And she said you should audition. And I auditioned and luckily I got in. I was the worst worst in the audition because I hadn't danced since I was 15, so I'd had four years off. I was lucky to get in. It helped that I was a boy, to be honest. Okay. I had an advantage because I was a boy and there wasn't many. Just the numbers game. Just the numbers game. The lecturers at at the audition panel saw something in me because we did improvisation and choreography as wow. part of the mm-hmm. um, 
audition and I'd done studied karate for 10 years. So I was um, um, had won awards for karate, my whole my Sean, brother and you're sister. a man of like very my, many. I know. Well, it's very similar to dance, you know. <laughs> so my sister's now fifth, sixth Dan Black Belt. Wow. So she kept going with the karate. So we all did karate. My brother as well is Black Belt. Um, so all us kids did karate. But I remember doing a contemporary dance karate version for my improvisation. Like yes. they ask you a question and I did a response where I merged some karate forms with mm-hmm. contemporary dance. And I remember them all sitting forward in their chair. And, and I think that's what got me in is the creativity stuff. And they could they liked the fact that I'd done a science degree. Wow. So they they could see that I'm prepared to give up my science degree life to come and dance and that I really want it. They could see it in my eyes, I think. They could see the hunger, <laughs> hungry like the wolf. But anyway, yes. <laughs> so you attend VCA yes. and now the craft is starting to be honed. Yeah, exactly. VCA was incredible because you do everything, ballet, contemporary, um, dance history, f- physiology, anatomy, um, dance analysis and criticism, production studies, choreography, mm-hmm. sort of everything. And at the end of third year, Meryl Tankard was doing an audition because she was about to take over Australian Dance Theatre mm-hmm. and she did one in every city and she came and everyone in Melbourne went to it. It was like 300 people packed in the studio at VCA and it was October so I hadn't quite graduated. We graduated in the December. Mm-hmm. So I was still in third year and... And I got down to the final group mm-hmm. in that audition. Like Meryl just, I could see her watching me and I had gone to see, she'd just done a production called Two Feet, this mm-hmm. very famous work of hers where she talks about life as a ballerina and Meryl performed it. Mm-hmm. And I saw it at National Theatre and I remember watching Meryl perform and thinking she's incredible. I want to do something like that. That's who I want to work with. Because wow. at the time there was a trend in Melbourne of a, a flowy postmodern tracksuit dance, I used to call it, <laughs> yes. where you sort of roll around on the floor. And that wasn't really me because I couldn't really see uh, the connection of the work. It felt like a sort of a sort of aftermath of the New York dance scene at Judson Church where they would mm-hmm. fill their per- perineum and trot around the studio, which can feel marvellous, <laughs> but not really that interesting for the viewer and didn't really have much to say apart from I'm trotting around the room flowing like a leaf blowing in the wind, which can be lovely, but it wasn't for me. Whereas yes. Meryl Tankard was like, boom. And I thought, I want to work for her. So when she came and auditioned, I was on it. I was in there, eyes open, and she I think she could feel it, that she knew I wanted it. <laughs> so Meryl took me straight into her company, Australian Dance Theatre. So I was there for most of the 90s. Wow. And Meryl was my guru. She was uh, a master teacher, master choreographer, and I was getting paid a full-time wage to dance in a dance company for most of the 90s, and we toured all around the world. Meryl was incredible. Wow. Incredible. I mean, really, for only three years of training, you know, in your late teens, really, yes. it's it's really an incredible story. Strange. <laughs> I know. I can't believe now when I look back wow, how did I find all this in me? Maybe it's naivety. It's just this naive push. I love Mordurin, but it was a way for me to get out of that toxic, hateful masculinity thing that was there that you Mm. were hated if you were not, you know, the star football player. It was really full on. So when Um, you were dancing with Meryl, mm. had you made peace with your dad 
and his yeah. his thoughts around dance? I think so. I was still striving to improve to impress mum and dad always mm-hmm. my whole career. But I remember I wrote mum and dad a letter. I was in my first year, end of my first year of Merrill. Mm-hmm just before Christmas, writing them and thanking them for providing for us kids and also for helping me be able to get to do my dance, even though I sort of did have to move out of home in that second and third year of dance to find my own purpose and my own voice. So there was ripples there and I always felt a disdain for me choosing dance. But um, over the years, my dad became more and more proud and you know, it was. It did take to his seventies for him to, but it took that long for him to truly realise. And also, a man of his generation. It's a different, yeah, hundred percent. So different generation. He has to go through that process as well. Yeah, and it's hard because they were taught even harder than what we were. Their mm. generation in in the country towns, they were they were pounded even more about what the gender roles were. Oh, absolutely. And what he did, he showed his love through providing a roof over our heads and giving us food. Mm. My mum and dad, and they they dedicated their life to us three children. And my mum only worked part-time because she was looking after the children. You can't undervalue the importance of that because she also, dad was working three jobs to pay for us all, Mm. to do what we wanted to do so we could help achieve our dreams. It's pretty amazing. We were not rich. We were a poor family. But my mum and dad over the many years worked so hard mm. they were able to sort of climb from the lower class to the, to the middle class through absolute hard work and focus. And also kudos to your dad for making that change because there's a lot yes. of people who don't get there. Don't. Yes. And so for him to sort of evolve. And lucky he didn't drop dead earlier or something because that <laughs> sure. would have been no good because, do you know what I mean? <laughs> he it hadn't have been seen a, that evolution. It wouldn't have been a... A closure. So it was very healing, actually, and um, to see that journey. But they were also, you're absolutely right, those fathers of that generation were hamstrung mm. through expectations of what they had to be. So he was doing his absolute best. Mm. Is choreography always at the back of your mind when yes. you're a dancer? When I was an actual dancer? Mm. When I was dancing, no. Actually, really, it was no, it was um, dance become the best performer and dancer and be the canvas for the choreographer. Mm-hmm. So, you were Meryl's canvas, I was Meryl's canvas. I gave her 200,000% whenever I could. I was there to impress her, to be her canvas, to get better, to be one of the best dancers in the world was my goal. I was mm-hmm. really focused as a dancer. Mm. And so, when does Sean Parker and company start to kick in. Kick in. I think after Switzerland, so this was 2004, mm-hmm. I was 34. I wanted to keep dancing forever till I was 50, at least 50. And it was then that I wanted to start the choreography once I'd had, I'd dance, I wanted to dance with every famous choreographer in the world. That was my goal. Small goal, but I, got, <laughs> I love it. I got a handful of them, but that's okay. <laughs> but once I reached 34, I was working with the choreographer company, Alias Switzerland. The choreographer was fantastic. He had an excellent eye, really good, smart guy, amazing shows. But it was his choices of what he did with the material and why he put them together. 
why he chose certain scenes, why he developed them, what was the overarching theme, what was the dramaturgy mm-hmm. linking the characters together, what was the choice of set design, how did it connect with the music, why was he choosing that music. Like this was what was going on in my head every night when I went home and I realised from that project with him I've got to do my own work because I just couldn't relax at night because I felt I know how to make this better. You know, and I, I realised I don't think I can be a canvas for anybody else anymore. Yes. I feel like I need to do my own thing and I didn't want to, but it started creeping in and that's when I came back and did a work called Blue Lava, a little mm-hmm. duet, and finished that off and it put it on at the Opera House and it did really well and that was like opened the door of, oh, here we go. Oh, I've got to do choreography now. I can't work for someone else. I needed to do my own choreography. It was like a calling. I had to do it. You had to do it. I want to talk about King. I reviewed that opening night at Mardi Gras 2019. Yes. And I've now in my research come to know that that was a hugely long development period. Yes. But somehow it hit the stage at sort of the moment that the term I'm not sure I love this term, but toxic masculinity hit the sort of mainstream media, the zeitgeist, and it just seemed to hit the stage at the moment society could almost cope with it. Yes, exactly. I totally agree with you. I'm very cautious of the term toxic masculinity. However, I know I know exactly what you mean, and it was very prominent at the time. I've lived through what toxic aspects of masculinity can can do and be and how it can affect people mm-hmm. through my own lived experience. That was feeding into the work, um, this notion of maleness, but you're absolutely right. It hit at the right time, but also most of the people really loved the fact that it was being interrogated in that way. Mm. Some people um, found it a bit controversial because they didn't quite connect with the fact that to truly expose something, you have to understand it and you've got to hit it Mm. head on. Mm. Um, And I've often wondered about that because I felt that even maybe two to three years earlier and it could have, it was almost like, the timing, the development of society's views around the patriarchy and the Me Too movement, everything that came at that time just was so perfect. And it's funny, I saw it with my Mm. mum who was in her late 60s and she, we both couldn't even speak when we came out. And I thought, you know, different generations and she absolutely could take her own meaning from it as I could totally different generations. Yes. Very interesting. I mean, it's also very rare. There are exceptions, but it's very rare to have an all-male ensemble. It's it's mostly rare to have male nudity on stage. Yes. And so I can see that there's maybe some (laughs) (laughs) factions of society may find that really confronting. Yes. And there are, there is, you know, man's capacity for violence. We can't ignore that that's that is part of a million years of evolution and it is, mm-hmm. you know, p- part of the of what it is to be male. 
and there are moments of violence within the work and suppression and domination of power and distortion of power. And when I was making the work earlier on, because it took me five years to get the funding to finally make it. So when I started it, Trump was coming into power. And I remember at the time thinking, he's the perfect example of the privileged male who thinks he can do, say and do what he wants without mm. any um, Consequence. consequences. And, mm. and he's now the president of... USA and just it was and that with the, all the toxic masculinity stuff it brought up a lot of stuff for me growing up as a young mm. boy trying to learn how to be a good man mm. when there's such oppression and distortion of power and bad behavior ahead mm. of you is you know so how can we help our boys become really good men mm. and it was all feeding in together also as well the you know the the suppression of sexual identity that like that was sort of coming in to the fore for me i was i'd been married um to a woman for you know uh, 13 years and had a child and and that uh marriage after 13 years um sort of dissolved all of a sudden it just all came apart and so i was single again and i was um open to um my bisexual identity and i was exploring that and and i felt that there was a lot of my identity I never would have been allowed to do if I was younger because it would have got literally bashed out of me, mm. and it sort of was a little bit. So it was all feeding in together. And um, uh, King, uh, the version that we just did on tour in Europe, I was able to even create and improve it and create some more threads throughout the work, mm. particularly around the notion of suppressed uh, sexual identity as well. Um, I'm glad some of my sisters friends and some older females came and um and also men as well could see themselves so mm. it was quite affronting for some older men to watch it and say gosh i can connect with some of that that generation where that it was even more st strong the notion mm. of toxic masculinity mm. so it's quite amazing to see that audience response sean what would you say to a young sean parker in a country town anywhere in the world who has hopes of dancing, of making it to the stage, of choreographing? I would say to a young person like me that, or a young boy in particular like me, to stay focused on your dreams and your goals, that there is going to be reluctance even now. I would say to them, right now it's cool to be a hip-hop dancer or a crumper or a break dancer as a boy. Mm -hmm. That's sort of cool. You get a bit of street cred. But if you do ballet and contemporary and other forms, it's not cool and you will get hated on. If that is the case, do still do it because those other techniques are going to set you up for the future. Trust your creativity, smile, be yourself, embrace masculine and feminine traits of yourself, which is, is even strange to say that a trait is masculine or feminine in itself brings up already the notion that why should a trait be identified as masculine and feminine? So it's sort of one of those catch-22 mm -hmm. Um why should a trait of creativity be a feminine trait? Mm -hmm. Creativity can be 
both masculine and feminine. And I'm preaching to the converted. Most of the people in my world get that, but it's still, we forget. We know when all your friends are artists and stuff, we're surrounded by people who who get all of that, but Mm -hmm. the whole world doesn't necessarily get that. So we've still got a lot of work to do in that sense. But I would say to that young boy, be creative, find your own identity, your own sexuality, um, be exactly who you are. And be stubborn. It's your life. Sean Parker, thank you so much for speaking with us. We're just so privileged to hear, you know, all about your life. And, you know, considering that you started with a speech impediment, it's just even more incredible what you've come to deliver to the world. So thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Claudia. After sellout performances of King across Europe, Sean Parker and company continue to tour Australia and the world. For tour dates and tickets, head to seanparkercompany.com or you can follow all of their adventures on Instagram at seanparkerco. You can also find their production of Am I online as part of the Sydney Opera House's 50th anniversary celebrations. Sean and I recorded our conversations on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation to whom we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes as soon as they're released. And if you like us, please leave a five-star review. On the next episode of Talking Points, you'll hear from Brooke Casson. Because I did a lot of media for the company and as my profile really grew, people just assumed that I was a higher rank than I was. And even still, people in media things will say, oh, you know, the top ballerina. I was never the top ballerina. I also was never under the illusion or had the goal to be a principal artist. That was never something for me. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, with additional production by Penelope Ford and Clint Topic. Sound production and editing is by Martin Peralta at Output Media. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.